This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is David Rutledge with you once again for The Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program, where this week we're talking about a pernicious social pathology that's been attracting a lot of attention, both on the part of philosophers and out there in the broader culture. It's actually been an identified phenomenon for about 80 years, but for various interesting reasons that we're going to be getting into, it's taken on a contemporary urgency. The topic is gaslighting, and if you maybe haven't heard of gaslighting, then stay right with us because we're going to be getting into what it is, what it isn't, whether or not Donald Trump has in fact gaslit the entire United States of America, and how gaslighting could be a far more prevalent and widespread issue than we realise. I'm talking with Paul Mikhail katarpang Podosky, who's lecturer in philosophy at Macquarie University in Sydney. He's published an excellent recent paper on gaslighting, and he joins me now. Paul, welcome to The Philosopher's Zone. Thank you for having me. I want to begin by talking about why we're talking about gaslighting, like why we're all talking about gaslighting these days. Because the word, of course, goes back to the late 30s, early 1940s. It pops up here and there over the following decades. But the use of this word gaslighting has really taken off uh, over the past 10 years or so. And then last year, of course, we saw Merriam-Webster name gaslighting as their word of the year. Why this relatively recent currency, do you think? It's a really good question. Because, as you said, in the 1930s, this is when the term started to emerge in public consciousness in the form of a play, uh, which was then adapted into a film, um, and which won an Oscar. I think Ingrid Bergman won an Oscar for it. Um, And basically, the play recites this story of Paula, who is deeply depressed and traumatised by the death of her aunt. Um, But in the midst of all of this, Paula marries this guy named Gregory after a two-week romance, uh, and then they move in together. But then we slowly discover that Gregory is trying to steal something from Paula that she inherited from her aunt, and he does this by basically doing things that makes her question her own sanity. So... Here we get sort of the beginnings of what looks like our ordinary understanding of gaslighting already. But there is this interesting question as to, okay, if this happened in the 1930s, why is it only now that it's entering into dominant public consciousness and being used in our daily lives? And I think I have an optimistic answer and a pessimistic answer. The optimistic answer is we are an interesting period of history when it comes to things like social agitation for minority rights. Um, You get these mass social movements like the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter, and they're really bringing to light a number of injustices that minority groups suffer at the hands of dominantly situated people and institutions. So the optimistic answer is something like this. Gaslighting is filling in this gap in our collective consciousness that allows us to pick out some things that are wrong in the world. And that's a really kind of important thing that we need to be able to do. There's a whole lot of injustice, there's a whole lot of impression, and gaslighting is one of the means by which we can say, this is a real problem that needs to be addressed. So that's the optimistic answer. The pessimistic answer, though, is that gaslighting has been shown to be something that has great social power. It has this ability for us to be able to do things like make certain accusations of wrongdoing. And in doing so, we have the ability to sort of motivate or manipulate certain types of behavior. 
Why is this kind of pessimistic? Because it's been appropriated. It's been appropriated by dominantly situated people who are now using the concept in their own way to make accusations of gaslighting to serve their ends. So I think that there are two groups who have found this concept incredibly useful. The minority groups who want to pick out certain forms of injustices that happen in the world and dominant groups who want to take a hold of this concept in some sense to even defend themselves and to use it to maintain something like the status quo. That's really interesting. So with the dominant groups, then you're talking about, I guess, gaslighting used in bad faith. And this brings me to my next question, because it's it's one of those terms that, that do get thrown around very loosely. And I thought it might be helpful to talk about First of all, what gaslighting isn't, like situations where the concept of gaslighting could be invoked or has been invoked, but doesn't really apply, according to the way that you understand the term. Yeah, sure. So it's not merely lying or something like that. So it's plausible that one could tell the truth and still gaslight someone, maybe through omitting some details about uh, some relevant situation. Another thing that it's not is that it doesn't imply something like a success condition, right? To gaslight someone doesn't entail that one has to be successfully gaslit or gaslighted. One can engage in gaslighting behaviour such that that kind of behaviour is apt to cause someone to doubt their own reliability. So in some sense, sense, gaslighting is a probabilistic connection between certain behaviour and inducing certain mental states in another person. Another thing that gaslighting isn't is it's not merely just telling someone that they are mistaken, right? We can think of all sorts of ways in which we tell someone that they're mistaken that seems entirely permissible. Gaslighting seems to be something where we tell someone that they're mistaken in a very specific way. We're not saying that you've just got something wrong. We're saying that you've got something wrong in virtue of your ability to form reliable attitudes or beliefs about a situation. And this is where things like You know, gaslighting is typically associated with words like calling someone crazy or paranoid or oversensitive or something like that. So these are things that aren't gaslighting, but in some sense are related to this phenomenon of gaslighting. The terminology that you use in this excellent paper of yours, I'll I'll just bring that in here. You say that the object or the victim, if you like, of gaslighting must form a negative attitude about their own interpretive capacities and that gaslighting targets one's intellectual self-trust. I think that's very nicely put. Yeah, that's right. So I think what's happening here is that when a gaslighter uh, uses particular language, I take it to be often sort of just a really sociolinguistic phenomenon, but when they use particular language, what they're doing is they're trying to get their targets, their victims, to form an attitude about their attitude-forming mechanisms. And typically this is something like intellectual self-trust. They're trying to say, should I give a high amount of credibility to the sorts of beliefs that I have right now? Or should I doubt what I believe in virtue of what this person's telling me about myself, that I'm crazy, that I'm sensitive, that I'm paranoid? So I think that's what gaslighters, if they're doing it intentionally, that's what they're aiming to achieve. They're trying to undermine someone uh, in their capacity as an independent rational agent. But you talk there about what they're aiming to achieve. And yet one interesting thing, I think, about your work on gaslighting is that it leaves room for an absence of intention. Because my reflexive understanding of gaslighting is that it's a sort of a power move, you know, where one person intentionally sows doubt in the mind of another about their, their own grasp on reality. But you're allowing for the possibility of unintentional gaslighting. What might that look like? Yeah, that's right. 
I take it that the paradigm cases of gaslighting or the cases of gaslighting that we tend to care about are the ones that will involve um, a relevant intention. So one might be something like, you know, the gaslighter intends to harm through gaslighting or the gaslighter intends to manipulate through gaslighting. These might all occur and they might be the sorts of cases that we take to be particularly pernicious. But I think there is going to be plenty of reason to doubt that any way of characterising intention uh, as it relates to gaslighting won't capture all the cases that we care about and that we should care about. So you might think that, uh, say, in a workplace, a woman testifies to her colleague that their boss has just um, sexually harassed her. And the colleague, without any great intention to convince this woman that she's crazy, just says, oh... Maybe, I'm sure it was just an accident. I think John's the kind of guy to do that sort of thing. Here, there's no intention to harm. There's no intention to manipulate. There's no intention to gaslight under that description. In some sense, the colleague is just trying to give reasons for the woman to doubt that this happened because maybe he likes his boss. Maybe he's just wants to see the best in people or something like that. So here, we probably want to call this kind of case gaslighting because something that the colleague is doing is inducing some sort of doubt in the woman about whether or not this sort of thing happened. But it doesn't look like there's the kind of intention that we would ordinarily suspect in paradigm gaslighting cases. It's not present there. This is where epistemic injustice comes in because you've written about how some groups of people are more disposed to being gaslit because they are more disposed to be on the receiving end of this this thing that um, Miranda Fricker, I believe, has called epistemic injustice. So before we get on to why you're interested in this, let's take a quick little tangent and I'll just ask you to sketch out what we mean when we talk about epistemic injustice. Yeah, of course. You know, it's interesting to be part of philosophy at this moment because epistemic injustice, while has been around since 2007 when Miranda Fricker published this book, Epistemic Injustice, Power and the Ethics of Knowing, um, it's still kicking around. It's still this major kind of field of inquiry in philosophy where people are doing at least two things. They're either identifying different forms of epistemic injustice or else they're trying to show situations in which epistemic injustices tend to arise. But one thing we can say about epistemic injustice in general is that it is an injustice that occurs when one is undermined in their capacity as an epistemic subject. Now, what's an epistemic subject? Well, you can think about an epistemic subject as being a knower, right? So we're an epistemic subject just when, you know, we know certain things. But it doesn't need to be that strong, right? We could be um, a reasoned believer, the one, a person who has the ability to form certain beliefs with the right reasons, or with any reason, an inquirer, a perspective taker. So if epistemic injustice targets us in our capacity as an epistemic subject, it can do this in sort of different ways. It can do this by targeting our testimony, right? Our, our standing as someone who has the ability to give credible judgments on topics. This has come to be known as testimonial injustice. So it occurs when one is given an unfair credibility assessment. Um, and then there are other forms of epistemic injustice out there um, that people have been talking about. Fricker talks about another one called hermeneutical injustice which is a complex word, but basically it's just the idea that certain groups of people, marginalised people, don't have an equal opportunity to contribute to the creation of concepts in the collective consciousness. So she gives this example of something like sexual harassment. Once upon a time, we just didn't have that word, and it was only 
you know, not that long ago, something like 50 or so years ago, uh, that the concept was even coined. And prior to that, there's a whole bunch of experiences out there for which women typically in the workplace couldn't make conceptual sense of. And it was only until there was these feminist consciousness raising groups where people got together and said, this thing in the workplace keeps happening to us. We really need to come up with a term that's going to be able to make sense and render intelligible our experience of this kind of oppression. And so they developed this term sexual harassment. But prior to that, there was a hermeneutical injustice. They couldn't make sense of what was happening to them in a way that was kind of well articulated. That's a really interesting example to bring up here because you have also written about how there are certain groups of people who are more likely to be on the receiving end of epistemic injustice. So these are women among others? Yes. So epistemic injustice will target anyone who exists in the margins or marginalised social groups who tend to be excluded from what we might call the economy of epistemic relations. What does that mean? Basically, anything that stops you from being able to achieve or live your life as an epistemic subject. So women tend to be a kind of group of which are denied full epistemic subjectivity. Why? Because they're persistently doubted when it comes to a number of their abilities or or dispositions. They'll be doubted when they testify to certain forms of sexual harassment and sexual assault, because we live in a patriarchal system that hides facts of sexual assault and sexual harassment from people's understanding, right? Uh, Women will also be subject to certain forms of, say, silencing or their perspectives not being heard, say, like, again, in a workplace uh, where a woman, say, at a meeting, expresses an idea to the team that gets ignored and then a man only moments later says exactly the same thing and he gets credited um, with coming up with a brilliant idea or something like that. So minority groups at large, I think, suffer from epistemic injustice. Women particularly suffer from it because the stereotypes associated with women tend to be ones that question their capacity for rational thinking and that they are historically associated with things like hysteria, oversensitivity, paranoia, being too emotional and things like that. Right. So so then why, in your view, is epistemic injustice relevant to this discussion that we're having about gaslighting? What's the connection there? So gaslighting is going to be one of those things that will bring about epistemic injustice, and it relates specifically to testimonial injustice. So remember, testimonial injustice is this idea that one is undermined in their capacity as an epistemic subject in virtue of being given an unfair credibility assessment, uh, which is just a kind of fancy way of saying when someone offers some testimony that they have good reason to give, they tend not to be believed because of some identity prejudice operating in the context. Right? Gaslighting is one of those situations that really brings about this sort of phenomenon. So when, say, a woman testifies to sexual harassment, say, in the workplace and someone says, oh, I think you're being too sensitive, right? I'm sure it was just harmless flirting. This is a clear case of gaslighting and a clear case of epistemic injustice, right? It's a case of gaslighting causing epistemic injustice because the person is using gaslighting as a means of undermining the credibility of the woman who's testifying to sexual harassment or sexual assault. So there's a very clear relationship between gaslighting and epistemic injustice at this level. 
on Radio National and the ABC Listen app. You're with me, David Rutledge, right here in the Philosopher's Zone. I'm talking this week about gaslighting with Paul Mikhail Katarpang Podoski, who's lecturer in philosophy at Macquarie University in Sydney. There's also this question of whether or not gaslighting is always an interpersonal phenomenon. And I find this one really interesting because ever since 2016, we've, we've all been coming across accusations of gaslighting levelled at Donald Trump, right, and, and how he has supposedly gaslit the entire population of the United States of America while he was president. And of course, Trump did tons of damage and he told a million lies. But how did he gaslight the nation? Is, is it possible to, to gaslight millions of people? I think that this is very contested um, in the literature and I think even in our own ordinary understanding. Gaslighting, as in, in paradigm cases, is going to be interpersonal. It's going to be typically dyadic between two people, typically with some kind of unequal power relation. I do think it's important when talking about this more kind of structural phenomenon or more kind of higher order um, phenomenon of people like Donald Trump gaslighting entire nations to distinguish between whether or not gaslighting is occurring or whether or not um, the sorts of behavior that someone like Donald Trump is doing is creating the conditions for gaslighting to be more possible. So you might think of something like this. Because Donald Trump kept talking about things like fraudulent election results, then when people who are on his side of politics go and have conversations with people who disagree with him, they might call these opponents crazy. They might say, oh, you've just, you know, drank the Kool-Aid of woke ideology. You need to wake up. And these sorts of claims are gaslighting claims and they are gaslighting tactics because they're not dealing or engaging with the argument specifically. They're saying something about the reliability of the person in virtue of the politics or ideology they sub subscribe to. So it's hard to say whether or not gaslighting at this kind of high level, this kind of structural or collective level is possible. But nonetheless, I think that it's the kind of thing that can give rise to the conditions that make interpersonal gaslighting more possible. There's an excellent recent paper on gaslighting by the Australian philosopher Kate Mann where she discusses Donald Trump. But the subject of the paper is what she calls moral gaslighting, which she describes as a far more prevalent um, everyday phenomenon than a lot of people perhaps realise. What is moral gaslighting, according to Kate Mann's account? Yeah, I suppose the best entry point into thinking about moral gaslighting and comparing it to something like gaslighting in an epistemic sense is just with an example. And I can recite a personal anecdote. So I remember not too long ago, I was in my home city and I was grabbing a drink with some friends and, and for some background, um, a very different commitments, political commitments to my friends, um, especially on topics relating to race. And so in the middle of conversation, one of my friends uh, spots a man walking by and, and jokingly claims something like, oh, he looks like someone I know. And, you know, on the face of it, this doesn't look like much of an issue. But what my friend was saying wasn't that he, this person looks familiar. He was saying that the person in some sense looks similar. And the reason why is because the person that he knows and the person that was walking by were both Chinese, right? So he was making this kind of racist claim about all Chinese people looking the same. 
And so I made a, you know, I was, sh- I was upset and I was a little shaken. I said, you know, you can't say that. You don't know what it's like to be constantly reminded of how you don't fit the standard of, say, white narratives of how one should appear. And then my friend met this comment with this kind of like dismissive laugh. And he says, oh, come on, don't be such a social justice warrior. So there's a sense in which we might want to call this gaslighting. It was sort of patronizing uh, to me and to sort of the claim I was making about this being a potentially racist uh, comment. But what's interesting about the case was that it wasn't that my friends called me crazy or they didn't call me paranoid or oversensitive. They called me a social justice warrior. Basically, they were trying to hit me at the level of my moral or political character rather than saying something about my ability to make reliable epistemic judgments. And this is what Kate Mann seems to be very interested in. She's saying, in general, gaslighting intends, well, aims at uh, making people feel mentally defective for having mental states to which they're entitled. But, she says, epistemic states aren't the only mental states. There are also these kind of uh, states about how we feel about our own moral character. And so what Kate Mann's bringing to light is the possibility that gaslighting can impugn one's moral character rather than their epistemic character. And she thinks that this is actually more effective in some sense. Rather than targeting our, say, rational capacities, she thinks that when you target our moral character, there's a sense in which that rubs up against our tendency to be committed to living a moral life, even though what a moral life looks like is going to differ between sort of different individuals. But basically the idea is something like, because we're so committed to living a moral life, when someone brings up the possibility that we might not be acting as morally as we should or could, then that's going to subject us to some kind of manipulation, right? Because we will want to do our morally very best in that situation. And gaslighters can exploit this. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it also brings to mind her contention that relatively few of us are inclined to feel that we're completely out of touch with reality, which is where epistemic gaslighting hits you. But most of us are are very much inclined to feel insecure about our own moral robustness, if you like. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Kate talks about sanity actually being a low bar, which I think is quite a nice way to put it. But nonetheless, despite how low it is, there is this sense in which it is still a bar that has to be uh, reached. And quite often we're pretty confident about our rational capacities. But we tend to have Uh, or at least some of us tend to have less confidence in our moral character when our moral character is impugned or whether our moral character is in some sense under evaluation. And because of that, because we don't know whether or not we have in fact acted well, that can put us in a position of vulnerability where we will want to act well, we will want to correct mistakes, we will want to be looked well in the eyes of others. And because we're in that state of vulnerability, then we make ourselves available to manipulation. You mentioned structural gaslighting earlier, or the structural nature of gaslighting. And one thing that Kate Mann says is that that moral gaslighting is a very helpful category because it, it helps us to make better sense of structural gaslighting. What exactly do we mean when we talk about structural gaslighting? Right, so structural gaslighting is a phenomenon that's meant to contrast with these interpersonal cases. So as was mentioned The paradigmatic cases of gaslighting that we tend to care about are those ones that happen between uh, two people, typically in the kind of intimate 
relationships or something like that, or in domestic settings. Structural gaslighting, which was actually introduced by um, a couple of other people, Eleanor Ruiz and, um, and Nora Berenstain, they talk about how entire environments are created in such a way, such that knowing what the facts are is incredibly difficult, given the concepts that people have available to them and the kind of policing mechanisms uh, that are in place that stops people from knowing the truth. So this is sort of a complicated way of putting it, but examples are not hard to find. So you might think here in Australia, we have instances of structural gaslighting surrounding our understanding of what our history is, right? We, we often have these contradictory propositions that get floated around. You know, some will say things like, Australia was only discovered 250 years ago, right? And we get taught that in our education system. So that's part of our institutions. It's part of our structures. And at the same time, we'll hear political figures say something like, colonization was good for us. So here we can't really make up our minds about whether or not Australia was discovered 250 years ago or whether or not colonization was good. But these are the sorts of propositions and concepts that tend to be embedded within our structures, our education systems, our political institutions, and all things like that, which isn't a kind of instance of gaslighting that's happening between two people, but it's a ga- an instance of gaslighting that essentially affects an entire public by obscuring their understanding of what the facts are and what the best judgments of the facts are. I wonder if you think there's a, an element of moral gaslighting at work there as well, particularly in the, the example of um, debates or rhetoric around colonisation, because we've been hearing rather a lot recently that um, Indigenous Australians were well served by colonisation, um, both in that they were colonised by the British, who were much nicer to their colonial subjects than the Spanish or the French, but also in that colonisation has brought education and jobs and prosperity and all those wonderful opportunities that First Nations people are welcome to take up anytime they feel like it. That seems to me to be something approaching moral gaslighting in that you know, First Nations people are implicitly made to feel ungrateful, um, lazy, perhaps like they're, they're, they're the architects of, of all their own misfortunes. Is that the sort of thing that you're getting at there or, the, or that Kate Mann would be getting at? I think that this is something that Kate Mann would have in mind. Um, she herself doesn't use an example like this, but it does look like the kind of case where what's happening here is that sort of narratives are presented to the public about how much help, uh, you know, Australians are giving to uh, the First Nations population here in Australia. And then they're presented as being ungrateful when they try to agitate for more. Um, And basically what's happening, at least from my perspective, is that when, say, an Indigenous person agitates for more or for something different, then other narratives are introduced, as you say, that shows that they're ungrateful. And this is meant to be revealing something about their underlying moral character, that they're selfish, right? that because they're selfish, then we shouldn't take their claims or agitations for more seriously because we've given them enough. So I think that would count as moral gaslighting on Kate Mann's account because the environment that has been created is a surreal environment which has infected our consciousness to the extent that we are buy into narratives about the ungratefulness of Indigenous people here in Australia, despite the fact that things aren't going particularly well for them. 
Well, I think we can leave it there. Paul, very interesting conversation. It's, it's really interesting work that you're doing and I'll, uh, I'll put a link to uh, your paper and to Kate Mann's paper on the Philosopher's Zone website. So uh, thanks very much for coming on the show. It's been great to talk. Thank you very much for having me. And Paul Mikhail Katapang-Podosky is lecturer in philosophy at Macquarie University in Sydney. Check the Philosopher's Zone website for more details, including links to those papers. And of course, there's the ABC Listen app where you can stream or download this and all of our past programs. I'm David Rutledge. Great to have your company this week, and I hope you can join me next time. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.